0: As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Here on Swimming Upstream, we go against the cultural stream by championing life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Your host is Eric Salmons, author of seven books, including Holiness for Everyone, The Old Evangelization, and Bitcoin Basics. Now let's get swimming. Welcome to Episode 89 of Swimming Upstream. I'm Eric Sammons. A few episodes ago, I think it was Episode 81, I had a recording of a uh, class I gave at my parish, and that was on the five meanings of the word faith. And that's what this episode is going to be as well. It's going to be a recording of a lecture I gave for my parish, uh, the adult catechism class. And this time it's on a topic a little more controversial. It's on the creation and origin of man. And basically what I cover in this uh, talk is I talk about, obviously, creation. I specifically talk a lot about Genesis 1 and how to interpret it. And I give some ways, a way that I think it should be best interpreted, the the story of creation from the Bible. But also I I note what the church does and does not allow when it comes to creation and how we talk about that. And then, of course, I address the topic of evolution I will say I didn't really address it a whole bunch. I, I talked about it at the end of the of the talk, and I wasn't really able to get into it too much. Part of the reason for that is the next lesson after the one that you're hearing, which another uh, a priest at my parish is going to be giving, talks goes more in depth on the evolution of of man and women and how they came, how that came about. So I didn't get into it too much, but I did talk about it a little bit. Uh, so, anyway, I hope you do enjoy this lecture. Just a real quick note. please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. I actually had an error in my uh, how I had set up the Pod, the podcast hosting settings, and you could only see the last 10 episodes on iTunes or any of your uh, podcast catchers. And so people, if they search for topics I talked about previous to that, it didn't show up. So I think all of a sudden I got a lot more traffic after I fixed that error uh, last week. So if you want to go back, you can go through all my episodes now on uh, all 88 before this one uh, on iTunes or, or your podcast uh, listening device, be that as may. Also, just a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Eric R. Salmons. I also have a public page on Facebook that's just Eric Sammons Swimming Upstream. I hope you do... Uh, enjoy this talk. I, I, I had a lot of fun giving I think it, it, it helps us to look at this issue of creation and evolution from a Catholic perspective, and hopefully it will help you as well. Well, until next time, keep swimming against the stream. Well, today, uh, tonight what we're going to discuss is creation and origin. It's chapters 4 and 5 of the second part of the book, the Christian, the Catholic doctrine part of the book. Before I continue, I just want to make sure I, I a couple of announcements Father wanted me to give. Next week, remember, there is no catechism. The Heart of St. Uh, John Vianney is coming, and it will be here from 1 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And you want to make sure everybody knew there's confessions the entire time, from 1 to 6, two priests will be in the confessional. So if you need to get confession, go, it's a great opportunity to tell other people about it. Uh, also, at, I believe, 4.30 during, the, during that time, there's going to be a, a little service with, uh, uh, I think, a, a homily on St. John Vianney. And uh, something else. I know they need servers, so that's I'm not quite sure what they're doing, but something at 4:30. You also want to make sure you knew that they will be. We it will be finished at 6 o'clock. Like they have to get to Columbus. The Saint, the Knights of Columbus are the ones who are uh, bringing this relic around, and so don't show up at 5:55 if you want to actually, you know, uh, venerate the relic. So, okay, I think that's the only announcement. So no catechism next week, though, and we will go back in two weeks. Okay, so tonight, like I said, we're going to talk about creation and the origin of life. Now, needless to say, I think we all know this is a pretty controversial topic in modern times, and it's always seen in modern times in the context of the evolution debate. Of course, most of us are probably familiar in the late 19th century. Charles Darwin came out with his theory of evolution, and that has been the predominant way in which everybody, both those who believe in creation uh, creation by God and atheists who who don't, that's the way almost everybody now interprets the creation story. The problem, though, is that's not how the story was written. When I'm talking about the story, I'm talking about Genesis 1 specifically. Of course, Genesis 1, and all of Genesis, was written thousands of years ago. We don't know exactly when it was first written down, but it was definitely before the 10th century B.C., And you know it's it's obviously before Charles Darwin was around, (laughs) and so this is very important to remember this because I do think what happens often is that the those who are atheists, very pro evolution, they set the terms of the debate. They set the terms of how we we who don't necessarily believe, who definitely don't believe in atheism how we will interpret it as well. And I don't think that's right. I think what we should do as Catholics is interpret it in the way it was written, in the context it was written, the way that the author of Genesis wanted it to be written. So now let's take a step back real quick. Whenever we're reading any part of the Bible, it's very important to remember kind of who is the author. And in the case of the Bible, there's actually two authors of every single word in the Bible. And that, of course, is the divine author, and the human author. And so we believe of course that the Bible is inspired. And what we mean by inspired though isn't always understood. It mean it does not mean that the Bible was dictated. What i mean by that is it's not that simply like if i dictate to somebody if i dictate to my son say okay take down my words exactly he just simply writes down what i say and he cannot write anything else other than what i say. That's not how the Bible is written. God did not dictate the words to the human authors; He inspired them, which means the human authors wrote freely, but with this divine inspiration. And in most cases, we believe, is likely, that they had no idea that they were inspired. When Saint Paul wrote his letters to different Christian communities, he did not know he was writing Scripture when he did that. He just thought he was writing something. But God, of course, was working through him; the Holy Spirit was working through him, so that the words he wrote are what God wanted to be said, but it doesn't go like, it doesn't use, like St. Paul didn't all of a sudden have, when he's writing for example, he didn't have knowledge for example, of something he didn't have knowledge of before that. So he wouldn't have necessarily, for example, he wouldn't have understood something from 20th century science when he's writing in the first century to the first Christians. And so we can't expect him to know that when he's writing. Now, another thing that's very important is when it's... I think I mentioned this, but if it's inspired, it also is inerrant, which means it's without error. And this is a, a fundamental teaching of the church that the, the Bible is without error. Now, what that means is somewhat uh, debated, but the point is, is that there's no errors in it. So, for example, there's no errors in what the author intended to say. So, for example, if the author... if, if if uh, the, the Matthew, in writing his gospel, writes that Jesus uh, had this miracle of the loaves and the fish and he, and he fed the 5,000, he didn't mean, you know, he was just some miracle of sharing or something weird like that. No, he meant that Jesus, you know, had a miracle, that literally these few loaves of uh, and, uh, bread and the fish miraculously were multiplied because that's what he intended to mean so that he's not in error in saying that but if a sacred writer says something like uh the sun set we know the sun doesn't isn't actually the one that's moving around the earth but the earth is the one moving around the world around the sun it's a euphemism it's it's a figure of speech that we all understand so we wouldn't say that the sacred author had an error because he thought that, you know, because he said the sun set, because that's not an air, because he didn't intend to have some scientific fact of which one's revolving around which rotating around which one. So the reason I'm saying all this at the beginning, because that's important in understanding what I'm particularly going to focus on Genesis 1, what Genesis 1 is saying when it's talking about creation. So the main questions then we ask when we're trying to understand the context of any scriptural passage, including Genesis 1, is who is writing who are they writing to? Why were they writing? And how were they writing? Meaning, what literary form? So the first question is, like, who was writing it? And traditionally, the, the book of Genesis is, is uh, the author is considered to be Moses. A lot of scripture scholars today don't think Moses actually wrote that. I think it's fine to believe Moses wrote it. I don't think it matters for the purposes of what we're doing tonight. But more than just, you know, who are, who are they writing? Who was writing? But who... Are they are they, are they writing to? Meaning, what's the context? Who's their audience? Anybody who writes anything you know, I'm, I'm actually, that's my uh, profession is as a writer. Whenever I write something, one of the first things I think of, who are my audience? Who is my audience I'm writing to? I'm going to write differently to one audience than I might to another. If I'm writing something for a children, I'm going to write very differently than if I'm writing something to adults. If I'm writing something... Uh, maybe about baseball and write very differently than writing something about philosophy or theology. And so that's, we need to know that too. What's the context of who they're writing to? The next, the other question I'd like to say is why are they writing? What's their purpose? What message are they getting, trying to get across? This is where, when I was talking about the, uh, the inerrancy, this matters a lot. The, the guy, the, the person who writes in the scriptures, the sun set, his purpose wasn't to give a scientific treatise on the, the cosmos. And so if you say he's wrong, what you've done is you've messed, up, you've messed up this question of why is he writing. And this is very important for understanding Genesis 1 of the why, he, why they're writing. And then the last one is how were they writing. What I mean by that is what's the literary form? Meaning there's poetry in the Bible. There's history in the Bible. Uh, there's letters in the Bible to people. These are all different forms, and you read them differently. You will read if you got okay, – you know, for most of us, no offense to the younger ones, it's been a while, probably since we were first dating our eventual spouse. But you would read a love letter from your this, this beloved that you're dating much differently than you'd read the newspaper, right? You're not going to, and, you know, so, and if you say something in, if you read something in a love letter like, I'm terrible at this. My wife would laugh if I even attempt this. Something like your eyes are like stars or something like that. You don't literally mean your eyes are like supernova, you know, like blazing hot, you know, uh, balls of of fire out in the universe and like that. That's not what you mean. So if if you took that literally, then you're reading it in the wrong form. So we have to understand how are they writing it? What's the form they're using? Now, in the case of Genesis 1, I'm going to use a very... I'm going to use a term that's going to initially... Uh, you're probably initially going to resist, and I don't blame you. I would, too. But it's the, the, in Genesis 1, the, the literary form is a mythological form. Now, where we get hung up on that is we don't understand what the word myth means. There's two different meanings of the word myth. The first one is a widely... I'm literally just from dictionary. A widely held but false belief or idea. Oh, that's a myth that... Um, that the, the NFL referees are good, or something like that. Um, so, you know, that, that's one use of the word myth. And so when we think, and we hear about myths from the ancient times, we automatically think it's not, it's not a true story. But another definition of the word myth is it's a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings or events. Notice one thing that definition doesn't say. It doesn't say it's not true. You can write a story in a mythological way that is still true to what you're saying. You're not necessarily making anything up. Now, a lot of myths are making things up. But the point is is if we understand that, that Genesis 1 is written in this style, the same type of style that you see in other creation myths, yet... That doesn't. When we say that, we're not saying then that it's full of errors, or it's just, or it's just somebody making something up. It just means that's the style, and it helps us to understand it. But the reason why I say this is because it's important to remember it's not a newspaper report. It's not what you would expect. You don't read it the same as you would the daily news. Now, of course, most newspaper reports are far more false. These days than anything in the Bible, obviously. So definitely don't read like a newspaper report uh, because you know it's all fake news or whatever. So those are things to remember. Now, I want to now move a little bit into the context where where I'm talking about the context of what was written of Genesis, of Genesis 1 particularly, the creation, you know, the creation story. By looking at a couple other creation myths. Because like, they, they kind of tell us what, people, what how most people perceived how creation happened. Because, of course, every people that's ever lived have been interested in the question of how did we get here. I mean, that's a fundamental question every single person, usually by the time they get to adulthood, is thought of at least once. How did we get here? How, did, how was the world created? How did, why is humanity so different from you know, plant life or animals? And how do we get brains and all this stuff? You know, everybody kind of thinks of that. And so every people, every culture has created these, these myths. And like actually online, there's this site that like has all these different myths. And like this one, it's a list of 21 different creation myths from Norse to Cherokee to Japanese, to India, Babylonia, uh, China, uh, Hawaii, uh, ancient Greece. But there's one I, I, and there's a few, but one I liked in particular was one from Babylonia because it's from a very similar time frame as what we find in the bible and it's called marduk creates the world from the spoils of battle and here's how it starts in the beginning neither heaven nor earth had names now if you're familiar with how the bible starts that should sound it's very similar right so in the beginning neither heaven nor earth had names absu the god of fresh waters and tiamat the goddess of the salt oceans and Mumu, the god of the myths that rises from both of them, were still mingled as one. There were no mountains, there was no pasture land, and not even a reed marsh could be found to break the surface of the waters. It was then that Apsu and Tiamat parented two gods and then two more who outgrew the first pair. And then it goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically what happens is Tiamat and Apsu get upset at each other. is upset because the offspring are too loud and keeping him up which I think is kind of funny as a parent. Um, and, but he wanted to kill them, actually wanted to kill the, the offspring. Tiamat, of course, being the good mother that she was, was like, no, that's bad, so he, she killed him instead. And so then like from, yeah, it's like our family. Thank you, Peter. Um, and so basically we have this, and they get this battle, and then basically the world gets kind of created and gets formed by these battles and by this fight. That's a very common creation story. What we see, you know, there's another one, a Greek one uh, of Gaia, and, and I think most of us probably familiar with that term. It says, in the beginning there was chaos, the abyss. Out of it first emerged Gaia, the earth, which is the foundation of all. Next came Tartaros, the depths of the earth, where condemned dead souls go to their punishment, and Eros, the love that overwhelms bodies and minds, and Erebos, the darkness, and Nyx, the night. Erebos and Nyx made love, and from their union came Aether, the air, and Herm- Hermera, the day. That's nut, what we see usually happens in these creation myths, the, a couple things. Number one is there's always pre-existing matter that creation is made out of. It's, more being, it's less creation as it is formation. There's something that already, you know, like I said, neither heaven nor earth had names, but they existed in the beginning, according to the Babylonians. Greece, Greece as well, you still had chaos, the abyss, you have something, and then it's formed. So that's the first thing. Another thing is it almost always happens that it's either through a conflict of battle, and oftentimes in these creation myths, after they have the battle, the world is literally formed out of the bodies of the dead gods. And one time it was like they took some logs and made humans out of them. Or uh, intercourse between the gods. That's how the, the, the world is made. That's what we saw with the Greek one. And so that's another thing about it is there's this conflict and there's multiple gods that are battling out that end up or, or, or uniting that end up making the world. And a third thing that is very common is there's no Eden. It's always like conflict and, and, and things like that. There's, the gods themselves are sinful. They're the ones, I mean, like this story with Apsu and Tiamat, I mean, they're, they're killing, they want to kill each other. So what's interesting is, is in none, because remember the people are writing these and coming up with these, they live in the fallen world. So their only experience is, is that things are bad. And so they create these creation myths where things have always been bad. And the gods themselves are bad. And some, but out of this conflict and stuff, we, we get creation. So that's, that's kind of... In, now, I'm not saying that, that Moses, the author of Genesis, knew all of these or anything like that. But that was like... You might have known the, the Babylonian one, for example because there, there might have been, you know, stories going around that area of the world. But the point is these things were happening. Another thing is, it's like interesting, even without religion, you see that, that people are creating ways to how the world could become. Because if you look at, like, for example, the Greek philosophers, the pre-Socratic ones before, you know, before Socrates, so we're talking like 7, 8, uh, 7, 600 B.C. to about 400 B.C. They're using their, instead of religion, instead of coming up with these creation myths, religious creation myths, they're using their reason to try to formulate how did the world begin, how is everything united. And they would come up with things like, uh, everything is united in one thing, like it's all water, or it's all fire, or air. And one even came up with this idea that it's all mind. And this was actually pretty close, about as close as they got to the idea of one God. And in fact, it's interesting because using their reason alone, the Greeks got much closer to the truth than most of these other uh, religions like the Babylonians and, and, and the Greek r- religion because most of these philosophers end up rejecting uh, the Greek gods in, in many ways. But this is, so this is important. That th- that's what is happening is the most common idea of creation is that it's just pre-existing matter that the gods end up shaping into our world through conflict or intercourse and it's always been uh, pretty bad, <laughs> basically. And the gods themselves are bad. So now that we've talked about that, we, let's look then at Genesis 1 itself and how it depicts the creation. And so it uses language, like I said, you know, how I said how the Babylonians had said in the beginning. They all, almost all didn't start like that. Well, so does, so does Genesis. It starts the same way, of course. But it's answering two questions. And this is the key to understanding Genesis 1, I believe. And that is, the first question is, what did God create? And why did God create? These are the two questions that Genesis, the author of Genesis, is answering. Note what is not on this list. How did God create? In fact, there is one time in the Bible where the subject of how God created the world comes up. And that's in the book of Job, chapters 38 through 41. And basically, if you read it, I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to be all disrespectful in why I say it like this, but God almost sounds like he's annoyed, like how, why are you even asking me this? almost like a frustrated parent to a child who just keeps saying, why, 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 why? And like eventually that, don't look over at my son. It's been a long time since he did that, sister. Uh, I saw you look over at him. Um, but like, you know, it almost because he said, he goes... It basically says, you know, where were you? Here's God speaking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And this is like three chapters in Job where he basically uses this type of language. to basically tell Job, you don't know how God, I created the world and you frankly wouldn't understand it even if I told you. And so that's, that's Scripture's answer to how God created the world is, it's really, you're not going to really understand it. So the question isn't even a valid one. Now, I am, before we finish tonight, I am going to talk about evolution and those questions of how some. But I really think it's more important first to really establish what Genesis 1 itself is saying. Because, again, when we're battling atheists who are saying that there is no God, that, you know, the material world exists on its own and stuff like that. We need to we can't do it on their playing field because basically we give ninety percent of the argument to them, and then all of a sudden we try to fit Genesis into their system and it just doesn't fit. It's like putting a square peg into a round hole. So let's get these two questions. What did God create? Now, what does it say in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period in the story in a certain sense. What's amazing about the way that the author of Genesis talks about creation is there's no conflict, there's no like multiple gods having intercourse or anything like that, and there was nothing before God created. He created the heavens and earth. It wasn't the heavens and the earth didn't have a name before. No, they didn't even exist. And so fundamentally, that is one of the most important things to note is that God created the world out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the term we use. So there was literally nothingness. There was only God before God created the world. And the way he created it, in one sense, only how we know is simply by his word. He just simply said, you know, we have all these different passages, that let there be light. You know, let there be a firmament. in the midst. He just simply speaks and it happens. And this is a very different conception of God than anybody during those times would have had. That God simply is so, so all powerful and so above all things, he literally just says, Let there be, and there is. None of the other gods could do that. None of the, you know, the fake, all the, the, the Babylonian gods, the Greek gods, they couldn't do it. They had to form things out of other things or through conflict or whatever. But not God. He just simply says it, and it was. And the funny thing, just as a, a tangent, that's one of the amazing things when you read the Gospels about Jesus' miracles. If you look at miracle stories from most other religions from different times, you see a lot of work being done to make it happen. Like, they're, they're doing different things. Well, Jesus just says, you know, you're healed, and you're healed. I mean, it's just so casual, the way Jesus performs miracles in the Gospels, which is basically the point of the, 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 the Gospel author's the reason they're saying it like that is to show that he, I mean, that's because he did it like that, but also it shows his divinity, he doesn't need any outside agency, external agent in order to have these miracles. He simply can do them under his own power in a way that kind of harkens back to Genesis 1. That you know, Here's Jesus. He can you know, cure somebody just by his word because he's the same person who literally created everything just by his word. There was no work being done in one sense by him. So he created everything out of nothing. Um, okay, so then the next the next passage, the next uh, verse, so in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, verse 1 verse 2 says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters now of course that spirit of God the original author and the original people who listened to it would not have seen it in a trinitarian sense because the trinity hadn't been revealed yet, but we of course as Christians can read back into it when he talks about the spirit of God, almost something separate from God that, you know, God the, the creator so to speak well, we know that, of course, is, that's two persons of the Holy Trinity. That's the Holy Spirit. But the important thing here is it says the earth was without form and void. So I'll just write formless and void. That's what the world was when God first created it. Verse 2 says it was formless and void. Well, here's the problem. Everybody reading that knows the earth does have form now and it's not void so what's happening is the author of Genesis is creating a problem and then he's going to solve it because you read this and you say okay there is form and there is, and there, there are things it's not empty so what happened and that's the purpose of the rest of the chapter of Genesis the rest of that chapter 1 of Genesis is he's solving the problem of formlessness and being void and so the next six days, the first six days of creation, it represents the solution to this problem. Now, this, there's, a, there's a chart in the book that went through this in the chapter, you know, chapter four, I think it was. Um, what page is it on? Let me make sure. I'm using a slightly different, on page 348, there is a, uh, a chart that's similar to what I'm going to hand out. I'm going to use a slightly different one that I got from a book by Scott Hahn that I think is just a little easier to understand. But the the point of this is that this is solving that problem. Now, one thing I just want to say before I go too much into this interpretation. This is a very common... The interpretation I'm going to give of Genesis 1 is very common. It's been held for centuries by Catholics, and lots of Catholics believe it. But it's it's important to note it's not like it's Catholic-defined dogma. That this is the only way you can interpret Genesis. in the book, he has two different popular interpretations of it. He personally likes the one I'm, I'm going with as well, but then he has another one, and he's saying, you know, that's also a possible one. Let's not, not say the church says something it doesn't say. The church does not say that there's one specific way you can interpret this, this passage. In fact, in the entire Bible, there's only like a couple verses in the entire Bible the church has ever definitively defined what the interpretation is. I can't remember them. I know one of them has to do. I think with uh, uh, the conception like something in in Paul about about original sin or something like that. But the point is, though, the church doesn't go around saying, "Okay, this first means this. This verse means that." It just it gives us a framework that it can't mean certain things and it might mean that. Okay, so I'm gonna I'll draw this up here. but I want to hand out, I'll hand out this chart, people. It's just a it's like a photocopy from the book, the Scott Hahn book. And I reference it on the page as well. So you just take one and pass it on. And so what it's happening is he's comparing it. He's comparing it to building a house because really that's the language that the, the Bible is using. And often the, in the Bible, the world is, con, is kind of considered God's house or God's temple. And so in a way, this is like how God built the house. And so he actually—it's even a little drawing of a my marker's starting to die here. So, this beautiful house I've drawn up here. So, again, there's two problems that's going on. You have without form or formlessness. And then you have it's void. And so now what we need to do is we need to solve this problem. We need to answer the question of how did, it, you know, how was it that the world is now with form and not void anymore? And so what we see is on day one, what happens? He says, let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness. So now all of a sudden we have, a, we have day and night. That's the first thing we have on day one. Day one. And this is basically the different parts of creation. So we have time. So now we have day and night. You know That's how we track time, right? It's day and night. You know It's the daytime, nighttime, and then the next day. On day two, it says, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. Basically, the sea and the sky is what it's talking about here. And so now, what we're talking about is space. That's another part of creation, right? Time. And when I say time is part of creation, that's very important because literally there was no time before creation. Creation was the creation of time, because time, remember, was it measure? It measures change. There was no change when there's only God, because if there's only God, He does not change. There is no time with God. So now, literally, when He created the world, what He's doing is He's creating time. At the same, so that's why time is the first part of creation. Then we have space. And then on the third day, it says he made the dry land appear from out of the waters and bade it bring forth the green herbs and the fruit tree. So now we have land and vegetation. In other words, we have life, the other part of creation. So time, space, and life are basically the three parts of creation. And so that was what was created on day three. So now we have three days and we have time and space and life are created. and they're more a better way to put it is they're being organized. These three things are now being organized. Because even without form and void, if, if there's a creation, there still is time, space, and I guess there's not really life yet. But the point is is like now we're also, he's organizing. That's what the six days he's doing. He's organizing his creation. So day and night, sea and sky, land and vegetation. Well, now we get to day four, so we've answered the question of now we have form, but it's empty. We have empty form. We have a void form. So now, the next three days, he's going to solve the problem of the void, the emptiness. So on day four, it says, on the fourth day, he said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. So we have sun, moon, and stars. And this, of course, is how we, those are the things that are created that make us track time. I mean, that's how we track time, right? Our days, our 24 hours are how much the earth revolves around the sun. And even though they might not have understood the exact Uh, cosmology of it, they knew the sun and the moon is how you track time, and so now we have something that exists, and in fact here this bottom part are realms meaning, you know, like the forms, the the area, the space the time, the life, and up here are the rulers like what rules each of these different sections so the sun and the moon and stars they rule time in a sense now again, this is not be taken in a scientific way of like The sun somehow is a big clock or something like that. But we all know what that means when we say the sun and the moon, they rule our time. Because we know it's daytime if the sun's out. It's nighttime if the the moon's out. The next day, day five, now corresponds with day two. And he says, on the fifth day, he said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. And God created great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm and every winged bird. So now we have the fish. I'm sorry. Yeah, the fish and the birds. And what are they? What are they filling? The sea and the sky. So now we're solving it. They rule the sea and the sky. They're filling up this. They're filling up the space. And finally we have day six. And now what we're going to have is the. Oh, thanks. I didn't know that was me. <laughs> um, on day six, we now have. On the sixth day, he made cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth. And then, of course, God created man in his own image. So we have the animals and man. We are what rule life and land. And, of course, that is now it's all filled out. You have there's six days here. So now, by the time we got to day six, we solved the problem of what did God create? He created everything. He created it without form and void, and then he gave it form, and he filled it up. That's the... That, this, in other words, this ordering of the days, that becomes the... It's organized by what? It's organized by topic, not by chronology. In this interpretation, it makes it clear then, for example, the big question, and like, I love how atheists think... like oh we just thought of this problem that nobody's ever seen before even everybody's known for like thousands of years like well the sun comes on day four but there's light before that how is that possible i mean you literally you'll hear an atheist bring that up like nobody's ever thought of that before and like augustine's addressing that you know in 400 a.d even before that well in this interpretation of being a topic that's an irrelevant question it's just simply it's not it's, it's it doesn't matter for this interpretation because it's not saying necessarily what order these things are happening in chronologically? It's it's organizing it by topic, by time, space, and life, and it's solving this problem of form and void. So remember, that's the, that's what the answer. That's the question that Moses is trying to answer, or whoever wrote Genesis one. He's trying to answer the question of how did the world get here, and how 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 did it get formed and and not void and not empty. He's not answering the question of, okay, what order was it created in or anything like that, or how long did it take? Of course, that's the big thing is what does day mean? There are interpretations that, did, you know, day could mean literal 24 hours. There are interpretations that could mean thousands of years. There's different interpretations. Well, I would argue, at least this interpretation would argue, it's not even okay, whatever. I mean, that's almost the answer that, that the author Genesis is giving is, I, that's not part of my point here. Um, maybe he has or not. He might have an opinion on how long it took. He might think it took whatever, 24 hours or more or less. But that's not the point of what he's trying to say here. So what he's trying to do is give us, answer these questions. Now, remember I said the first question was, what did God create? What was the second question? Why did God create? That is answered then in the seventh day. Now remember... God did not need to create us. He had no need for us. He can exist for all eternity, be completely content and happy and all, you know, all goodness and all that. He has no need of creation. And also remember, there's no battle here between good and evil. There's no like, competing forces in the world. All this is good. And that's other thing I didn't even mention is, every day that he creates something, what does he say? He saw that it was good. So that's a very fundamental point of creation. The, the Christian and Jewish creation story is that God created everything good. It was all good before the fall. And, of course, we're not going to talk about the fall here, but that's we believe and we know that the, the fall happened later. It was originally created good. So there's no battle. It's only good. But on the seventh day, like God, so God, God rested. And, of course, a lot of people say, like, you know, what, was he tired? I mean, was it hard work? Of course not. It took no effort on his part to do all of this. Because it takes no effort on his part to do anything. He can do everything with, you know... He did not have to be like Thanos and snap his fingers. It just, you know, it just happens. Sorry for that weird pop, pop culture reference. For those who don't know it. But the point is he just simply... He thinks and it is. He says his word and it, and it happens. So he didn't need to rest in the sense of resting because he was tired. What the rest is, it's really for us. And it represents for us. It says... So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. And so what you notice is that every day, the first six days, it ends with, and there was evening, there was morning, one day. There was evening, there was morning, a second day. Third day, fourth day, fifth day. And then on the last day it says, and there was evening, and there was morning, sixth day. There is no phrase like that about the seventh day. He just says, So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work which he done in creation. In other words, his blessing of creation extends forever. It's not over yet. It just, is, it, it just always is. And so the reason, basically, God created, created us is because to give himself glory, because what do we do on the Sabbath? I mean, which has now been moved to Sunday, of course, for Christians... We, we glorify him, right? That's what we're supposed to do on Sundays. We glor, Our rest is supposed to glorify him. So he created everything for his glory, first and foremost. But secondly, he created it out of love for us. So he could share his love, which he, God is love. So he could share it with everybody. Share it with his creation. And so we enter into that love. And so this seventh day is the sign of that covenant between uh, between God and man. We have this covenant that's everlasting that is he basically, his love for us. So the question, so here he's answering, what did he create? And here, the author is answering, why did he create? So he created, this is what he created, and this is why he created us. The Sabbath, which extends for eternity, which is basically his covenant, his eternal covenant with us. Which, of course, then he renews, and you know, we break the covenant over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And then, of course, finally, he uh, perfects it in, in our Lord, in his death and resurrection. So this is, the, the book makes this clear too, this is one of the two interpretations they give. And there are more than two. And there's other interpretations. So as much as I do think this is like the best way to read it, I'm not claiming this is dogma either. I just think this, this, this answers the questions that I think Moses was, was asking, the ones he was trying to answer. And I think it makes it very clear. And also very much corresponds with what the, the, the church says about creation and about what we are to believe. Like, for example, that God created everything out of nothing. That's the, the number one thing, is that everything is created by God. And it wasn't, you know, it didn't just come out of nowhere, but, I mean, it did come out of nowhere, but God did it. It didn't come out under its own power. Now, the last topic I kind of wanted to address was, the, you know, the elephant in the, the, the room, which was originally, I guess, an amoeba or something, uh, evolution. And again, like I said, it's not what what Jesus was, was concerned with, but it is what we're concerned with because it's what we address. I mean, if, if somebody had, was tasked to write the creation story today, and you know, God inspired him, you know, obviously the Bible is finished. We're not going to add to the Bible, but let's say some weird way that God wanted to add a, you know, a section to the Bible of the creation. Well, we would write very differently than this because the context is very different. We have the context of a world which is very materialistic. And what do I mean by materialistic? It's the idea that there's nothing in the world beyond what, we can, what science can, can see and touch and feel and taste and all that. Just material. There's nothing uh, beyond the material world. So evolution has been used very much, the theory of evolution is very much used by materialists. Now one thing to note is that the church does not condemn nor endorse the theory of evolution. Because evolution, technically, is a scientific theory. And the church has no competence in that area. All it can, all, what it talks about is things about, uh, the, you know, the spiritual world, you know, our, our spiritual life, about God, things, the theology, those things. It doesn't talk about science. It doesn't authoritatively discuss, you know, make doctrines based on science. So it simply doesn't say that it endorses the theory of evolution or condemns it. Now... What it will do is it will condemn those who add philosophical or theological points to a scientific uh, theory. So, for example, if you believe, if you say, you know, I'm I'm a scientist and I'm all for the theory of evolution, and it's obvious from the theory of evolution that there is no God. Oh, 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 hold on! (laughs) That's when the church says, "You just, you just did what you don't want us to do." We're the church. We're saying we're not going to go into your realm and declare ourselves experts. So you don't go into our realm and say you're an expert. Because what happens is you see scientists, they think they're like all of a sudden philosophers because they know a lot about biology or something. I mean, the most famous example recently was Stephen Hawking, who passed away not too long ago, who was this great, I mean, genius. I think he was a physicist mostly, but he's this genius. Well, then he starts talking about, um, uh, you know, Creation and like you know how there is no God and things like that, and he's like he, he's a terrible philosopher. A second grade or who had any basics in philosophy, read the Baltimore Catechism, knows more about philosophy than Stephen Hawking does, who's one, who was one of the smartest people alive. So the point is, don't get into each other's uh, each other's uh, area of competence, and so that's that's where we really run into the problems with the theory of evolution. But the two major points that the theory of evolution kind of posits is first the survival of the fittest. This is the one that's most known. So uh, before I get to the second one, let's just talk about that one. Survival of the fittest, the idea that a, um, a species, through its interactions with the world, Develops and changes over time to better adapt to it. So, if it has some way that it doesn't adapt well to the world, that that aspect of it will die off, and then future generations will be better uh, at, at dealing with that part of nature. So, within a species, you know, like you know, uh, a, a, a dog, for example, evolving over time into a better type of dog based upon its uh, interaction with nature. That theory there's nothing against the faith in that i'm not saying it's true or not i'm just saying there's nothing nothing about that will go against the faith you know god created the dogs you know dogs and, and maybe he made them so that they adapt and they get better over time okay fine but what happens of course a lot of times is oh, it's the survival of the fittest is and it gets us into the second point is that part of this uh, evolution and development of a species evolves into a completely new type of species. So that, there's really and the other, that's the first point of evolution. The second is that there's two types of transformation that, hap- that can happen according to uh, the theory of evolution, of a transformation in quotes. Maybe it's a scary quote. Scary transformation. One is what I just said. From one species to another, from a fish ...to a mammal, for example. From a single cell to more than that. So, you know, the first, like I said, is within the species. Now, again, with this one, there's nothing against the faith about that. Like, it does... If that were true, that wouldn't go against the faith to say that. But there'd be a couple things you'd have to note. Is that, first of all, if, for example, a monkey became a man part of that process is God would be infusing the soul. That would have to be part of it because the soul comes, is a non-material item, and so evolution doesn't have anything to do with the soul. But the one thing to note is there's literally zero scientific evidence. Now I'm going beyond my purview, I know, but I'm just going to say it anyway. There's literally no scientific evidence that this has ever happened. Science is based upon observation. That's the number one key of science is if you can't observe it, with your eyes or with your ears or with your hands or whatever, then you can't prove it. I mean, that's like the fundamental uh, truth of science and that's what science does. Well, there's never been any, there's been zero observation of a species evolving into a new species. So, you know, personally, I think that's pretty, uh, it's unlikely, I mean, maybe it's happened. But I don't care, honestly. But I think it's you know highly unlikely because it, I do know this. It's never been proven. It's happened. So why should I believe it? So the other type of transformation, which the book talked about a little bit more, and is very important, is from non-living, something non-living, to something living. Because of course, if there is, if you know the theory of evolution is somehow we evolved out of some non-living matter and became living. You know, whether that first living thing was, you know, some type of little single-cell blob or whatever, the point is it went from non-living to living somehow. And so, technically, there's also nothing technically just by saying that that's against the faith either, because you would just have to acknowledge that God created the non-living matter, and he made it so it could turn into living matter. Now, I said that there's no proof within species of transformations. Well, there's not only no proof of non-living becoming living that that's ever happened, but it's just simply a stupid idea too. I mean, it's just like it's just ludicrous the, the idea that there's no evidence. There's never been anything in our our experience that ever would show that something non-living can become living. Yes, God, maybe a billion years ago, whatever made it happen, but. God usually works. He he has a set way he works, and he doesn't change it. He basically works the same way. In fact, that's one of the things you look at all the covenants in the Old Testament; they're all tied together and they work in the same way. You see, God, you know, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. It just it 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 goes over and over a very similar way, and that's how God works. So, there's there's zero evidence for this. The idea that that somehow we became first things. There's a I'm a I'm a Star Trek fan and uh, deal with it. But there's an episode of Star Trek where this powerful being takes the captain of the Enterprise back in time billions of years ago. And of course, all the people who wrote Star Trek are a bunch of you know, evolution 80s people, but you know, I still like the show. And he shows him, he's showing the captain, he's like, look there. And all it is, it's like this dead rock, it's Earth from billions of years ago. And there's like this goo. And all of a sudden, he's like, look there. And like supposedly like life formed. And he's showing him the beginning of life. And just on the face of it, it's so, it's so like against common sense. It's so idiotic, the idea that what, I mean, what happens to those non-living things? They, I mean, they can't mate. They, I mean, if they were, they were already living. I mean, what the heck? I mean, just, it makes no sense. But it was great science fiction, I guess. Um, so, so the point is with evolution is there's no real proof. There's no proof at all for, any, for, for most of evol- the theory of evolution. But more importantly is, the more important point is that the theory of evolution as a scientific, is a scientific theory that does not touch upon uh, philosophy or, or faith or anything like that. And so it does talk about the spiritual world. So even if, let's say 100 years from now, somehow it was proved that, for example, there's evolution within a species. Let's just say that happened. That would not at all contradict or harm the faith in any way. It, 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 would, it would harm a misunderstanding of the faith, but it wouldn't harm the actual faith. So I think the real problem we get with these the debates between evolution and creation, things like that, is that we're debating... Um, well, we're talking two different languages, and we're not talking about the same thing. They're talking about uh, science, what's observable, and when we're talking about like Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is not talking about science. It's talking about... Questions of like what God created, and why He created it, why God created something, is not sci- cannot be scientifically answered, and so and it isn't. So that's that's the key is let's try to make sure we know the difference between these two. So when we're talking to people, we know okay because I do think sometimes I see creationists like my brother-in-law, he's a, a fundamentalist Christian and he's very much a, a strong uh, seven-day creation, you know, creationist, and all that, and I, I always tell him that's that's fine. But a lot of his arguments he uses against evolution, he tries to get into science to, to argue against it, to argue for the existence of God. Like you can argue with science against these things, because just say, okay, show me your proof, show me your observation that these ever happened. But you can't use science to prove the existence of God, for example, because one of the, like a very common way is like the God of the Gaps theory, I think it's called, something like that, where like the universe is so complex it would take an intelligent being to create it. The problem with that is, and it, it, it's true so far as it goes, but what it's really saying is, is that we don't know of any way that it could be this complex naturally, so we're going to just put, insert God in as the answer, the scientific answer. The problem with that, though, is you're basically just, all you're saying to them is, you know, we haven't figured out yet, but they can just say, well, we will, maybe we will one day, because you're trying to make God a scientific answer when instead if you're if you the better proofs for the existence of god for example would be like aquinas's five ways we, which we've already talked about a lot of these where you prove from reason it's metaphysical uh questions not scientific questions okay well we're, we're getting running out of time so i want to leave a little bit of time open for any questions anybody had Does anybody have any questions about what we talked about uh i remember i'm not a scientist so no like you know tough evolution questions <laughs> or anything got. Like anybody have any questions about what we were talking about Yes. I feel, I'm trying to form the question in
1: my head, but it's my understanding that <clears throat> if all the church fathers agree on something that we are we are held to believe that it's my understanding that the Council of Trent said that. I'm not 100 on this, so it's my understanding that they believed that there were six 24-hour days, and that you know that.
0: Yes, absolutely, yeah, exactly.
1: So when you were talking about the science part, it's like, that's what you did to to create. You have to create out of nothing. And so I also, well, I kind of got...
0: But science science. can't prove whether or not you create out of nothing.
1: Right, I'm not arguing that. Okay, But anyway, um, I also think I...
0: So well, two, yeah, to
1: believe
0: that. two things. Number one, it's not exactly true to say all the church fathers believe. They that didn't 100% agree
1: on all things.
0: But right, but when, he, it's, not, it's not true to say when they all 100% agree, we have to believe it, because really that's kind of the, reversing the point. Because if they all believed it, that's because the church already believed it. Um, because, for example, they all believed Jesus rose from the dead. And we have to believe that, but not because all the church fathers believed it, but because that's but it's a
1: way for us where we are now to look back we, we can, can look back and see that's that. What I'm saying. The other
0: thing is though that all the church fathers didn't believe in six 24-hour day creation. Augustine didn't. Augustine said we don't, you know, he did not subscribe that it was definitely a six-day, you know, 24-hour day. So, I mean, he's obviously one of the one greatest of the church fathers. So it was not unanimous. The church fathers actually, some might, some did, but others did not. And, None of them, like Augustine, didn't answer the question of how anything like that. He just simply said that, because like the, the issue I brought before about the sun coming on day four, but light came on day one, they knew about that. And some of them, including Augustine, would say things like, we don't really know how this happened uh, specifically. So in the end, there wasn't unanimous agreement among the church fathers about they whether might or not. be wrong
1: on that topic, but didn't they all agree?
0: Well, if you look at um, Genesis 1, it doesn't say he was created from the dust of the earth. It just says he was created. He was created in his image.
1: But in scripture it says.
0: Yeah, it says, it, it says on the, I mean, I think whether or not he was created from the dust of the earth, I mean, we, it's not a, it's not something not to believe. I mean, it, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't quite understand the question then of if he was created from the dust of the earth, what does that, what does that tell us? it's too hard to ask in like three minutes but like, right. I always understood that
1: and Father John Paul has talked about this in the past that you know, things have been switched theology was at the top and that yes. was at the bottom right. now in our world that we live in it's the opposite Yes. and so what I'm seeing just from my peon little brain is that uh, sometimes it just looks like sometimes people are trying to like I don't want to say it in the wrong way, but like they're putting, they're still looking at it from science being at the top, where the church is at the top. So if the church always taught that creation was the thing, even though it's not like the of consumption or right. whatever, yeah. um, wouldn't that be enough instead of worrying about what scientists... And it's not even really a theory. It's like a hypothesis. Right. It hasn't even been proved. It's not even really right. a theory. They call it a theory, but it's not.
0: And that is the attitude we should have towards it. I mean, because right. the, the truth is... is, is we, we use our reason, and so we embrace science. You know, we don't reject science. We embrace science. The problem, of course, with evolution is, and there's nothing wrong with science. Also, scientists come in with hypothesis all the time. That's a good. That's how you learn things. And so there's nothing wrong with that. The problem, and there's nothing wrong with the fact that Darwin came up with this originally. You know, he thought of this because that's just your thinking. Sometimes you make mistakes, and you're just trying to figure it out. The problem, of course, is I think you're implying is, is all of a sudden that became a, doc, a secular doctrine, that this is this is now proven true and it simply isn't proven true. And that's
1: the way people act.
0: Yes, right? it is.
1: So I just I'm a little confused because when I look at things that I've read, it looks like the church, even though they haven't come out like the macroconception, they pretty much have said evolution is false. I mean if, if you
0: look No, they've just said that you can't say I mean I think they have not said evolution is false. Well I
1: mean I know not officially
0: They've simply said that you can't believe that the world was kind of created by itself, that there is no creator. That you cannot believe. And that's basically about as far as it goes. Is that, and that there was nothing in existence, that God created everything out of nothing. That, that, is, that is definitive teaching. Um, but when you start getting into details, and usually this is the way the church works in most things. They, don't, they kind of don't go over the details too much. They're more just like, here are the, the, the principles we have to make sure we keep to... And that is that God exists, that he created everything out of nothing. And then he created, it because, he loved he created it because he loves us. created us because he loves us. But the details of, of you know, whether or not he was formed out. Because it does say you know, in chapter 2 how man is created out of the dust. In chapter 1, it doesn't. It just say let man in his image. And I think we're running out of time. So I can't really get into the whole exegesis of whether or not that should be treated literally, that it was literal dust that he did it, or if that's more of a uh, literary device to talk about him being created out of nothing. I think there's a debate. I, the church does not define that, that you definitely have to think one way or the other. So I'm not saying you can't think that, just, you know, the church is saying you don't have to believe that a specific way on how that, that happened. Okay, unfortunately, the kids are coming in, so we're going to have to wrap it up. I feel free to come with more questions you want afterwards come up. Uh, let's just say a prayer real quick. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Aley Guadalupe, patroness of the unborn. Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Mary.